Hey L2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in, G- in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have told you, now, told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and, their glory in their shame, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. It's good to see you all. Um, this sermon today is on joy in the midst of exhaustion. I don't know about some of you, but I know for me and in my family, I think that this, this is really a common issue. Um, I, I think it's fairly common for us to ask one another kind of how we're doing, and the response oftentimes is, I'm tired. And it just seems like we kind of live at a frenetic pace that kind of makes us that way. But this is, I think it'll be a very interesting sermon. Um, throughout this series, what we've been trying to do is prove a basic supposition that, that the levels of joy and happiness that we experience, they almost have nothing to do with what's happening outside of us. Um, I think the research that we're going to look at today is probably the most validating of any that we've seen thus far in regard to what it says about that supposition and how that kind of the practical implications of it. Um, but basically, we've been kind of pressing through that question that if that supposition is true, then we basically have to pull back and to say, if we ever do come up short, if we're dissatisfied with the levels of joy and happiness that we've come to know, we really don't have anyone to blame but ourselves. What's that saying is that what needs to change inside of us hasn't yet changed, and we're still radically dependent on what's happening outside of us to provide the happiness and the joy that we're looking for. Um, today, what we're going to do to look at this, we're going to push through this format that we've used throughout this series. We're first going to look at the joy and the exhaustion that we see in the text that you just heard that Corey read, and then we're going to look at a little bit of contemporary research that's being done on exhaustion and joy and the, the coherence or the, the uh, correspondence between those. And then lastly, we're going to try to draw a couple conclusions and application from Paul's example. So if we start by looking at the joy and the exhaustion that you see in these verses, you, 
you, you begin to see that this glimpse of Paul's joy actually emerges out of a setting in which he was applying himself with a passion and an intensity that left him exhausted. I mean, you can't read these verses and think that Paul was kind of half in, half out. There's no possible way. And so you begin to see that both of these are kind of in tension uh, as you read through these verses. If we start by examining the joy that we see in these verses, the, the context of the joy, the joy is actually going to appear in chapter 4, verse 1, but the context of it begins to build as he's writing in verses 20 and 21. And there Paul is affirming his fellowship with the Philippians, the work that he had done amongst them, but he, he refers to them in this little clause, citizens, they have their citizenship in heaven. Now, I think this is a slippery slope for a lot of Christians because that, that clause seems to indicate that, okay, we're sojourners here. This isn't our home. This is very similar to what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with in Hebrews 11. And this isn't our home. As Christians, our citizenship is in someplace different than here. But the practical implications of that in, in many Christians' lives is that they live as if they're not really engaged in this world. They live as if there's kind of a cold, almost indifference towards the culture around them. And here at L2, this would be one of the distinctives that we would try to press people to think through is that, like Paul, we can't be disengaged. And so I, I think that clause really demands a little bit of explanation to keep us from kind of erring on the wrong side of it. What I believe he's really getting at is to say our end game is a completion of a kingdom that is just truly amazing. And the days that we live now are investments unto that. And so it keeps us from this understanding, okay, I'm saved now. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. This is all going to burn up. I really don't care. And whenever the people around us, even our immediate family, but certainly those who we work and live around, um, work with and live around, there's, there's a sense in which when they discern that in us, it's, it's very off-putting because they can see it to the core that we really kind of hold things in kind of a cavalier way. We're not really heavily invested. Now, you couple that with people who think we're in the end times. It even gets more, more toxic because it's like, okay, God is going to kind of just trash this. And so all we're doing is just like drive-by evangelism. We're just trying to get as many people out of this world as we possibly can. And we're not involved in the workplace. We're not involved in redemption, you know, in the places that we work, in medicine, in law, or in teaching, or whatever it is that our occupation is. And Paul is not referring to this. He is building a context in which his joy is found with a group of people that had their citizenship in heaven, but they were radically engaged. He was calling them to that engagement in Philippi, in the very places that they, they lived and frequent every single day. And so there's, there's kind of a tension that emerges as Paul describes that, that, that we're looking for the return of Jesus. We're looking for the transformation of these bodies into a resurrected body like Jesus had through the power that that did all of that with him, but we're still very much engaged. 
Now, the statement, like I've already said, the statement of joy comes in the last verse. Now, most commentators of what we're looking at today in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, for those of you that, that, um, that perhaps might not know this, the original text that were written didn't have chapters and verses in them. And so oftentimes, those were added later. And so to help people refer to various places. If you said, okay, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, everybody would know exactly where to turn. Well, that's not the way the letters were written. They were added later. And so there's a lot of debate as to whether chapter 4, verse 1 goes with the end of chapter 3, like we're talking about it today, or whether it actually is introducing the beginning of chapter 4. I personally think that this is an amazing statement of his joy that belongs with chapter 3. And what he is saying is that this, this faith that they shared together had brought him to a point that he had a joy that could not be stopped. He's writing from prison, and in this first verse of chapter 4, he, he, he's stating that it's their position that they shared with Jesus that he has that it was this amazing endearment to him. Now, for those of you that know me or have known me for any time at all, know that I am like radically um, task-oriented. I, I, have, I have a behavioral motivational profile that is, it's, it's not really relationally oriented at all. And it's, I'm very different than many of you, but I have to be very intentional and it, it like jumps out in these verses that in spite of this relationship that Paul already shared with the Philippians, he says some things here that were underscoring the fact that he wanted them to know the place that he had with them. Now, there's a lot of different ways we do that. Um, you know, it, 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 it might be a, a hug, it might be a handshake, it might be a letter or an email that you send at various times that you just cause people to know that they're special to you. And that's what he's doing in this first verse of chapter 4. He's, he's using these amazing terms of endearment like beloved and brothers, which it, it doesn't fit our culture very well today. If you went around, I'd, don't go doing that on Monday. It's not going to help very much. But what he's actually doing is causing them to know that they were a, an integral part of what, where his joy was. It was grounded in that. So we, we see this glimpse of joy fairly quickly. And then if we move from that and begin to look at the exhaustion is when you really begin to see the basic tenor or the tone of these verses. Beginning in verse 12 to 14, we see a description that I think begs a question. Who is this passionate? How do you get from a point? Some of you, I, I know, I, I talk with you all the time. Some of you are just like the way I grew up. There's seasons where you run really hot and there's seasons where you run really cold. And the seasons where you're running cold, it's almost impossible to get yourself out of bed to come to church. It's, it seems almost that reading your Bible is just a chore and having discussions about what you believe in your faith, they, it, they seem very distant and far away. And then there's other times where they're really, really easy. But the, the intensity that you see here should cause you to say, how do you have that passion? How do you get to the point that your faith is that important to you? Because the way he describes it, particularly in verses 12 to 14, is, is just truly, truly remarkable. His exhaustion is depicted in this explanation of this relentless pursuit of, 
of his faith. And I, I, I think the best rendering or the best understanding of what he wrote here is that he was trying to understand who Jesus really was. It's, it's, it's not some prize that is, you know, like the Lombardi trophy that he, he has his eyes fixed on. He, he has discovered something in his faith that has totally captivated him. And he says not once, but two times, I, I, I don't want you to mistake this idea that somehow I've laid hold of this because I, I haven't. He said, I'm not perfected yet and I haven't laid hold of this thing yet. And so he's putting, your, he's putting you, as he writes these descriptions, he's putting you in the vortex of this writhing that's going on. He's got some grind that's working on inside of him and that's what he's, he's trying to explain. And I, I believe the best explanation for his passion is the statement that he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's in that clause that I think you begin to find kind of the, the nectar or the marrow of this whole, this whole explanation because Paul was a man who tried to exterminate the church. As soon as it got started, the persecution broke out in the book of Acts and they, they stoned Stephen and one of the deacons that gave this magnificent defense of his faith and they're so angry that they stone him to death, which is this brutal execution. And Paul is standing there holding the coats of the people that are doing it. And from that moment on, there was this persecution that broke out starting in Jerusalem and then it expanded like, like a pebble dropping in a pond. The waves are now expanding out and Paul was leading, instigating the whole thing. And so it's in Acts chapter 9 that, that Jesus actually stops him and he, he, he falls to the ground and he's blinded for, for three days and it, it is then that he's converted. And this, this kind of converges you into what Jesus talked about in Luke's gospel in this episode where this woman comes to him who, who, who's a harlot in the city and she's washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair and anointing his feet with perfume. And this smug Pharisee says, well, we know he's not a, a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman it, that it is that's touching him. And Jesus, knowing what Simon the Pharisee was thinking, he said, Simon, I have something to ask you. And he, he, kind, of smugly, he kind of smugly says, go, go ahead and ask it. Go ahead and ask it. And he said, well, there was this man that, that these two men owed him money, one 50 denarii and one, one uh, 500. And he said he forgave them both. He said, who do you think appreciated it more? And Simon said, well, I guess the one he forgave more. And he said, that's true. He said, that's true. He goes on to say, you know, I came in and you didn't greet me. You didn't wash my feet. And this woman hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears since I came in. And she's wiping them with her hair and she's anointing my feet with perfume. And what he was pointing out is that Simon didn't believe he was potentially a prophet because he would have greeted him that way if he thought that was the out possible outcome. And then he makes this statement. He says, her sins have forgiven. There were much. And therefore, she loves much. And he, he said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. And I think that captures or best explains what's going on in Paul. He, he went through this transition in his thinking, and he would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that I'm the least of the apostles. Well, that was, that was, a, pretty, that was a pretty amazing line of men. There was, he was the, on the, line of the end, end of the line of 12 men that spent all their time with Jesus. 
But eight years later, in around AD 63, he wrote in Ephesians chapter, um, Galatians 3, rather, he said, I'm the least of the saints. And so in that eight-year period, he went from the end of the line of 12 to the very, the, the door in heaven will close as he steps in. He's the last one. But five years later, in AD 68, he writes to Timothy, he said, this is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. And see, that begs the question, what happened in those 13 years from AD 55 to AD 68? Something happened where he, he did not see himself as some sort of a champion. He did not see himself as the victor. He didn't see himself as the one that was doing all these amazing things. He saw himself more clearly than he had ever seen himself before. And he really wasn't very much in his own eyes. And I believe that's the explanation. He was passionate because he had been forgiven so much. And that little statement that Christ Jesus has made me his own, I, I, I think it's the kernel of the whole thing in this explanation. But the point is, is that he's talking about this passion. This passion is driving him to exhaustion. It's relentless. Now, I have known this a few times in my life. Um, when I went to seminary, I, I don't know if it was the fear of failure in seminary that drove me the way it did or if it was wanting to come back here and start this church. I, I, I honestly don't know. I, to this day, I can't sort out which one it is, but there was a time that I didn't have an option to quit. I, I, I was taking 18 hours of of classwork per semester. I was working full-time for these two maniacs in Southern California. Um, my wife was so inconsiderate that she got pregnant with our fourth child while we were first there. And I still can't figure that one out, but it was just like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I had to just keep going. And these two men I worked for, they, they, they were amazingly successful. Um, Richard... Uh, Richard McShirley, her, his wife was Marjorie McShirley Stone, who did the set designs for the Adams Family and Back to the Future 3. They were, they, they were tied in with everyone in Hollywood. And Jay McShirley, the day I left, cried. He said, I've, we've never seen anyone like you. And there was something, to me, I look back, and it was just like I had no option. I wasn't trying to accomplish, I was just trying to get through school. And I, I remember before we went out there, I promised my wife, we'll come back in three years. And every time I'd go in the middle of the semester, I said, I can't do this. I'm going to have to slow down. She says, okay, then we're going to go home. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you promised me three years. And we just kept plugging at it, and we got there. And this is what this reminds me of. Paul is talking about the purest form of human passion that I can't remember what's behind me now. What is in front of me has captivated me so thoroughly that I can't even remember. Now, some people would say that when Paul says forgetting what's behind, he's just forgetting when he was Jewish. But I don't think that is. I think he's forgetting everything even in his Christian faith. He said, it means nothing to me compared to what's in front of me. And so this is where this exhaustion is kind of coming from, is where it's emerging from. That when he, when he uses this term, I'm straining forward, it, it was an athletic term, and it was used of, 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 we see it, we just saw it here recently in the, the Olympics in Rio, that a runner is finishing a race and it meant to extend oneself as far as you possibly can. In other words, there's not a, 
there's not a sixteenth of an inch that you could reach any further than that. And he's just explaining an exertion of human effort that is emerging from a passion inside of him that is just completely exhausting him. Now, when we turn then to, to verses 15 and 17, you, you begin to see both sides of kind of the same coin because in, in verse 15 to 17, he encourages those who consider themselves to be mature. In other words, there's some of you that think you've got this figured out. There's some of you that think you understand the faith. You possess this Christian faith. And he says, I want you to think like I do. Well, what does that mean? He says, I want you to be like me. And so he's, he's describing a tipping point in which there's passion on one side that looks like him and there's dispassion on the other side that looks like apostasy. And he, he, he dissolves the middle. There's no middle ground in this explanation. Verses 15 to 17, he said, I want you to be like me. I want you to think like me. And he says, if you don't, God's going to show it to you. In other words, God's going to prove to you that you can't do this halfway. So when he tips over in verses 18 and 19, his warning is alluding to those that had been in that aren't in anymore. And it sounds almost exactly like 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, where he says, those that went out from us proved that they were never really of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But as it is, they went out to show that they were never really of us. What is he saying? He's saying they came in, but they didn't stay in. And it proved that they never really had faith. And that's exactly the discussion that he's doing. In, in, in 15 to 17, it's, I want you to have this kind of passion. And verses 18 and 19, he's basically describing people who had no passion who eventually walked away. Now, that's frightening. And he intended it to be so. He's not painting any place for you to just say, well, I'm, I'm not like you, Russ. You just wind it too tight. I, 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 I can't be that serious. I, I, I don't want to read my Bible the way you do, and I don't want to, to, to be this intense about my faith. I would like to just be a little chill. I would like to manage my faith rather than my, have my faith managing me. Well, Paul is dissolving that, that place. There's no place for it. And so these verses in general are basically telling us that it is possible to have joy, legitimate joy, in the midst of an exertion of effort that is as much as you possibly have. Just one, one note, whenever I hear an athletic interview and somebody says, I gave it 110%, a warning buzzer goes off in my mind. You can't have 110%. There's only 100%. And Paul is laying down 100%. But he still had joy. And so these verses prove that to us. So when we take a step back and we look at the contemporary research on exhaustion, it's quite interesting, as I said earlier. The correspondence, I think, is going to shock you. In 2006, the Gothenburg University in Sweden published a study that, here's what they said. They said, winning the lottery or achieving a goal at work gave a temporary high, but it, it didn't last. That's what we've been talking about, the hedonic treadmill. And it, this hedonic treadmill is just saying that some study two groups, that one group that won the lottery and another group that became paraplegic, seriously. And within two years, they had the, essentially the same levels of happiness because you just adjust. It's like water finding it's a level. And that's what this study is confirming in 2006. But they go on and they said, working hard to reach a target was more fulfilling the important thing is to remain active. For our, research, for our research, the people who were most active got the most joy. 
It may sound tempting to relax on a beach, but if you do it for too long, it stops being satisfying. That's the hedonic treadmill. Go ahead and try to figure out joy for joy's sake or pleasure for pleasure's sake, and it's going to completely elude you. Now, Eugene O'Neill was a Nobel Prize winning playwright, and he, he wrote this strange letter to his son. You're not going to believe what he wrote here, but he, he had a, his youngest son was completely unmotivated. He was lazy. And he wrote him this letter in 1939. It's become famous. It kind of shocked me that that personal of a letter would be now famous with so many different people. But in the letter, this is what he wrote. He says, the trouble with you, I think, is you're, you're still too dependent on others. You expect too much from outside you and demand too little of yourself. You hope everything will be made smooth and easy for you by someone else. The best I can do is to try to encourage you to work hard at something you really want to do and have the ability to do. Because any fool knows that to work hard at something you want to accomplish is the only way to be happy. See, we don't hear that very much. We, we hear pursue your passion. We hear all this stuff. And he's basically telling his son, you know the problem? You're still convinced that somebody outside of you can make this work for you. You demand far too little from yourself. Now, those same findings are what caused one researcher, his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Try to say that 10 times. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I've got to practice it because I've got to say it like three more times. Um, he said this, he said, a person can make himself happy or miserable regardless on what is actually happening Excuse me, a person can make himself happy or miserable regardless of what is happening outside just by changing the contents of consciousness. What do you think he meant? By changing the contents of your consciousness, you can change your levels of happiness. He went on and he explained it this way. He said, what I discovered was that happiness is not something that happens. It is not the result of good fortune or random chance. It is, it's not something that money can buy or power command. It does not depend on outside events, but rather on how we interpret them. Happiness, in fact, is a condition that must be prepared for, cultivated, and defended privately by each person. People who learn to control inner experience will be able to determine the quality of their lives, which is as close as any of us can come to being happy. See the theme? There's a thread in this that starts to emerge. Now, in 1914, he, or excuse me, in 2014, he explained what he learned about happiness as he survived World War II in Europe. And this is what he said. He said, some people, even under the worst circumstances, seem to maintain their integrity, their purpose, their joy. Whereas others, once they lose their support of financial well-being or status or their property is lost, they kind of crumble and become empty shells in many ways. They become bitter and unable to function. See, he's talking about a tipping point where something changes inside of you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you're headed for misery. If it does, nobody, no one can take it away from you. I can remember as I, when I was young and I was just starting out in business, my father, who was very successful at the time, he, 
He used to tell me, because I always used to get nervous of meeting executives, and I was involved in this one project that the top execs of Apple were all involved in it. We, we actually manufactured the first portable Macintosh back in 1987. And he used to always tell me, he said, Russ, they can't take away your birthday. I want you to think about that for a moment. That's a statement that turns you inside of yourself. It causes you to realize, <laughs> you're right. There's a lot of things that they can do or not do, but they can't do that. And this is what Sheikh sent me high, found. Now, after 40 years of studying what made people happy and able to enjoy life no matter what they experienced, he discovered what he called optimal experience, and later they named it flow. And he illustrated it this way. I want to show you, there's a, there's a correspondence between this and what Paul just explained. He said, flow has three parts to it. He said, number one, when you, you engage in a difficult task, the first thing that happens is that it, it, it's like the focus on a camera. Everything is removed to the margin except what you're looking at. And there's an intensity where nothing, nothing else seems to matter. The second part of it is that there's such an intense concentration that emerges that there's no attention left over for problems or anything else. And so, as intense as the initial gaze is, it gets more intense. And it's like everything else. Even your capacity to encounter or describe or contemplate problems, that goes away. And then the third part, he says, you, you lose yourself. And time gets distorted. Some of you have experienced it where it seems almost like time stops. And you engage in a piece of writing or you engage in music or engage in teaching, whatever it is that you might do, and you realize 10 hours have gone by. You haven't, you haven't eaten anything. You haven't worried about taking a smoke break or anything. It's just like it went by. And he says that here is the optimal experience. This is flow. Now, I think the interesting part is that we have to say Christianity is certainly not flow. It's not. And Sheikh Semihai is not trying to make it Christianity. I, I, I'm not for sure exactly what he does believe. I tend to think that he has some very deep, serious religious convictions, but I, I don't know exactly what they are. So just on the surface, I want to disclaim the fact that I, I'm not trying to make Christianity flow, but I, I think there are several correspondences between what Christianity tells us about ourselves who we are, how we were created like a chip to fit in a socket on this motherboard. Your giftedness is not an accident. It's not merely genetics. It's not even mere education. But there's a sense that the key that would represent my life turns a certain lock that none of you turn and vice versa. You see, this is one of the most radical. I had, I had dinner on Friday night with a, a pastor of a very, very large church here in Denver. And he asked me, he said, I, I want you to tell me one of the core values, what you think would be the primary core value of your church at L2. And I said, I think that's simple. I said, I, I believe it's the authority of Scripture. And he looked at me like I was 
trying to present the, the pronounced cheek sent me high. He said, so how does that manifest itself? And I said, well, we tell people to turn their chairs around and to tell us what they see. He said, why would you do that? And it, 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 he, he wasn't probably quite that sarcastic, but my wife even said, you, you totally lost him at this point. And I said, the reason we say that is that we, we don't understand exactly what their lives look like, but you do. And it's our job to help you live the gospel in that setting. And it takes discipline to keep you from just collapsing your life into this place to where this becomes your life. Instead of the ammunition depot that you just go to get all the, all the tools and all the materials that it takes to construct the life that you have outside of here. And at that point, it was just like deer in a headlight. I, I, I don't know if he agreed with me or not. We, we were interrupted, and so we weren't able to finish the conclusion. But there's something here that sounds like flow. It sounds like optimal experience because there's a deep sense of conviction inside of us as Christians that who we are is not an accident. We're not the victim of being laid off of our last job or the victim of a poor culture in our next one. We believe deep inside of us that God has made us who he's made us for a reason. He's established the boundary of our inhabitation where we should live in Denver at this moment and our time in human history. There's no coincidence in that. And we believe that he's given us things that we must do. That's Ephesians 2 and verse 10, right? You're his workmanship, the workmanship of God himself, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. You alone are a key that fits the only one that fits certain locks. You have your things. Now, having said that, let's take a step back and look at Paul's example, because I think there's three things that, from Paul's example that just kind of like jump off the page now. The, the first thing is, is his effort. His work ethic, whatever you want to call it, you, you cannot create a caricature in your mind of a man that is sitting there waiting for things to come to him. That's not what his life was like, in spite of the fact that he's in prison. He's, he's more aggressive than the majority of us while he's in prison. And he's anticipating a life that's going to extenuate all that he has begun. And so his effort is exemplary. It would be all of the things that would cause a dad to be able to look to his sons and daughters and to say, be like me. Be like me. Learn how to apply yourself and to grasp and to accomplish things in your life rather than just sitting and resting on your laurels and waiting for things to come to you. So his work jumps off the page. The second thing is his relationships jump off the page. And this might be more meaningful to me than it is for some of you because I'm so relationally challenged. In spite of the fact that he had these remarkable relationships, he still thought it very necessary to tell them they were special. All those terms of endearment. He says, you're my joy, you're my crown. It's like, you're everything to me. He had to tell them in spite of good relationships to make sure that they knew. How many people in your life do you think are guessing whether you care about them? You see, that's what he's doing. He's removing any chance. It's like a pair of windshield wipers. They're just wiping all the crud off the windshield so you can see it clearly. Beloved and brother are terms of endearment that were used in the New Testament of the closest proximity of relationships. And so his work, his relationships, and lastly, his passion for Jesus is the one that has to that makes this passage for some of you probably one of your favorite passions in the passages in the whole Bible. 
The depth of his passion stands out. And it should challenge us. There's some of us that it should shame us. It should cause us to say, man, I am so not that guy. I am so marginal compared to him. So how long will you stay there? How long will you remain on the junior varsity expecting to win the championship? You see, those three things change everything, don't they? They create a focus and a vision that goes from his work to his relationships to his passion. He was passionate on the outside because he was so passionate on the inside. He diligently worked through what he believed. Now, for some of you, it looks like working through your doubts. You can't love Jesus like that because you don't know Jesus like that. And so you can't, you shouldn't be so conflicted all the time when you're wondering why, you know, a car can capture your attention or a house can capture your attention or a relationship or children or whatever because there's nothing on the other side of the scale that can possibly outweigh those things to you. But maybe that's telling you that your faith is not near what it should be because Paul's outweighed everything. He said, I don't even remember those things anymore by comparison to this. So at the very least, the most important takeaway from all that I've told you is just the simple idea that these verses show us that joy can be experienced in the midst of tremendous exhaustion, amazing exhaustion, if you're fully convinced about what you believe. So the question becomes, do you believe it? If you don't, let me challenge you. Look into it. Press into Christianity and see if it can't persuade you. If it can't, don't act like it has. I think that's the worst part of the church. A whole bunch of people afraid to be who they are and to act like they really don't believe it anymore. But if you do believe it, act like it. So let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. When considering happiness as dependent on internal thoughts or dispositions, how should we hold the idea of it being something we just need proper thinking on with the tension of God's sovereignty and will being in all things? Well, I, 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 I think this is a matter of wisdom. I know there's a lot of you that just hate that when I say that. <laughs> I have this guy I'm coaching that's a pastor in another state. It, every time he asks me a question, he says, I know you're going to start by telling me it's a matter of wisdom. Uh, but it is. The Bible tells you that God is in control of all things. It, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says he works all things according to the purpose of his will. And uh, Psalm 115.8 and 135.6, it says that he does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4 and verse 35, that he does as he pleases among the hosts of heavens and the inhabitants of the earth, the angels and men, and no one can thwart off his hand and say, what hast thou done? Whatever God chooses happens. And so how do you develop any volition in that? And that's where you see this tension. This type of passage is the one that creates that very tension. You don't find an ounce of apathy in Paul. And yet he's the one that is articulating and writing Romans 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. He's the one writing that. And yet he is the one that is saying, like take for 
for instance, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I beat my body and I make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I should be disqualified. He said, when I run, I run to win. When I box, it's not like beating the air. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. If we race, I'm going to beat you. And that is not indifference. And so I, I think we have perfect examples in the scripture where we hold those two in tension. But it takes wisdom. We can hold the fact that God is sovereign and in control of everything, every breath that I draw. He wrote the number of my days before there was one of them in his book. But that doesn't cause me not to take care of myself. That doesn't cause me to say, well, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. Because in Scripture, we have these examples, these tensions. And so you have to say, I am going to act as if my joy depends on me really believing but I know I can trust God to be the one that's at work in me, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's what we just saw in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So, very good question. Next one. In the context of serving others, how do we humbly and kindly deal with the guilt of saying no when we are simply exhausted by always saying joyfully yes? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I <laughs> I honestly don't tell you. I, I, what I can say is that most of you are way nicer than I am, and you say yes way more than I do. And you put, by saying yes, you put at jeopardy a lot of your other relationships. This goes back to our relational proximity maps that you're going to do in the redemption class, part two. You have to figure out who's in your lane one. Because you're saying yes to a bunch of requests from lane three, and you suck at lane one and two. The rest of you are going to get that in a minute. It's, what that means is that you're spreading yourself so thin that you're not really good at lane one and lane two. Those people that mean the most to you, you, you don't show them that you, they mean the most to you because you're doing things for just scarcely acquaintances. And so sometimes you should feel guilty about saying yes, not guilty about saying no. That's how twisted it is in our thinking. And so... I think all of us face that, no matter how relationally challenged we are. There's times that we need to say yes to something that costs us. It's going to be sacrificial. But then there's times that we need to say no because we're committed to other things. And God has made us finite. We can't say yes to everything. Last question. There's three today. I was hoping that was no further questions. What tactical steps can we take if we desperately want to pursue Paul's model of joy and exhaustion, but quite honestly can't imagine how we could ever get there? Read your Bibles. I know that sounds rote. I challenge you, if, if you've never read through your Bible, read through it. I, I, I'm, on a, I'm on a reading schedule that gets me through cover to cover every four months. But some of you have never read through your entire Bible. I guarantee you, uh, about six years ago when Tori, or he's now, when she started working, working for me, I said, if you're, if you're going to work for me, you're going to read the Bible where I'm reading the Bible. And she started doing it. It changed her life in less than a year. Radically changed her life. She found a passion and a depth and an intelligence to her faith that just shocked her. And it shocked everyone around her. She became... She, she was a counselor in our counseling center for several years after that. She still does, actually, quite a bit of counseling for us. And her life completely changed because she understood. 
her faith completely differently than she had before. And that created passion that moved her out of that apathy. It created a depth. She, she had a, a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, and she hadn't read her Bible. And once she started reading it, day in and day out, it completely changed her life. It will yours too, I promise you. So read your Bibles. Okay. All right, we're going to take communion now and finish our service, which simply means this is a time where we're going to take the things that we've learned. We're going to spend a few moments contemplating and examining our lives. And most, most of us are going to feel like you got punched in the stomach because I'm sure the, the Holy Spirit has convicted you just like he did me. My life is not as engaged as it should be. It's not. But neither is yours. And so we should see areas where we can be more passionate. We can be more engaged. And in those areas, just confess them to God. Admit them and ask him to help change them. He will. He will. You're gonna, we're going to come down and take communion, which means as Christians, we're, we're just basically saying this bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine represents his shed blood. And we're saying, that's me. I'm a Christian. I depend on Jesus. And that's a, there's an external testimony in that. So if you're not a Christian, don't do that. Don't tell us a lie. But if you are, I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, this I know this sermon, perhaps more than any that I've preached through this series, is going to strike a nerve with some people. Perhaps the most pointed part is that tipping point where Paul says, you should be like this. You should think the same way. And so he's saying, you've got to get in. Those of you that are on the fence, you've got to get off the fence and get in. Because those who don't get in, sooner or later they get out. And we don't like thinking that. I don't like to think that I could walk away. But, Father, we must take this seriously. So stir our hearts, I pray. Provoke inside of us a deep sense of passion, a deep sense of understanding and conviction about who we are, what you're doing in us, and how we're supposed to make a difference in this city. Because it was Jesus himself who said, salt that loses its saltiness can't be made salty again. So help us. We commit these moments to you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' good name and for his glory. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 